0: I'm sorry for not joining in that last verse. I was afraid my microphone might have been on. <laughs> and nobody wants that, I promise you. I got a chance to meet Larry Kaufman. He told me about his wife, Sheila, before service today. He told me a little bit about 10 years ago when he started coming over here and uh, joined the Started joining live groups, becoming part of this community. He told me a little bit about what it meant to him, about being baptized and joining this fine group of people. While I was talking to him, I was watching smiles, seeing people see one another again, and it struck me how, um, even really in a really difficult time, uh, the joy of God's people. Um, so it is a great pleasure for me to be here in your community. Uh, I, I, I it's an honor. I, I chose to come up here last time I spoke to you. I spoke from down there. I, it's my f- preference to kind of be closer, have a little conversation, so to speak, uh, a little more conversational, and a little closer. But today, I decided I wanted to be uh, up higher, further away, uh, a little more authoritative. And I do that because, not because it's my authority I speak with this morning, I'm going to tell a story from from Scripture. It's been a long time talking about a story from God's Word, from the Old Testament, a story you think you know, and you probably know parts of, but I bet you don't know it in its entirety, and because you don't, you may have missed some really important things. And there's something to be said when we go to God's Word When we look at the authority of Scripture has to say to us, I saw a painting today, uh, not today, this week. The painting was uh, a student at Harding had done it. It was really good, and it was of a lion. There was this majestic lion, fearsome lion, and off the canvas, you just see a hand reaching out as if to touch the mane, and it didn't quite touch the mane, but it almost did. What would that be like, to reach out to touch the mane of a lion, you know? How much trust would you have to have in a lion to reach out your hand to touch it? God is good. He loves us like a loving father. This is taught to us by Jesus, and it's a very important truth. And whenever we tell messages like that, it's good to be warm and fuzzy and up closer, but God's also powerful and transcendent. He's not just good, he's great, he's mighty, he's fearsome, and to be in his presence and to understand whose presence we're in should inspire a little terror (laughs) when you realize you're in the presence of God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we, we are people with unclean lips who, accept for his love and grace, we shouldn't deserve to be even in his presence, and yet he's with us this morning. He joins us, this mighty lion. And so since I'm going to say a word from the Old Testament, I decided it'd be good to be up higher, so to speak. And I asked the Lord to speak on my behalf, or I'm sorry, let's not say that right. I asked the Lord uh, to use me to speak on his behalf, not be my word, but be his. There's a uh, one last little I think I want to mention before I get into the story, there's a, in the parsonage that y'all have, there's a little sign over the sink that says, choose joy. What I want to talk to this morning about is about how to do that. What do we need to choose joy? It comes down to this. If we want to choose joy, the first thing we got to do is cut down our idols. There was a woman named Hannah. I bet you've heard about Hannah. Hannah was one of two wives of a man named Elkanah. The other wife was named Penina. That's the real names. (laughs) I didn't make them up. Elkanah was a good guy. He was good to Hannah. Penina, his other wife, had lots of kids, but Hannah didn't have any. And at the time Hannah lived, to be a childless woman was to be the lowest of the social totem pole. It was to have a life that felt barren. There was no beauty and goodness being produced as a result of your life. Has your life ever felt barren? You wondered what good could come from it when you get depressed and you feel like your days just seem empty? You don't know what you're doing worthwhile? Well, Hannah was a barren woman in ancient Israel. And she was very disappointed with her life. And at one point she went to a place called Shiloh. Shiloh at the time, at this time in Israel's history, is where they kept the tabernacle. You remember what the tabernacle was? They had a fence around a, uh, a, a, a nice temporary building you might think of it as. A fenced off, about a football field, around a nice, t- t- fenced, uh, around a nice kind of canvas uh, temporary building. And as you went in the building, that was the, uh, the, 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 the tabernacle to the Lord. And the inner room of that was the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, now mind you, it was the seating place of Yahweh. It was where Yahweh's most fully dwelt. The fearsome God of Israel. The God who brought them out of Egypt, who thundered down at Mount Sinai. The God to be feared, right? The excellent God Yahweh dwelt. He sat in the, in the seating place in the Ark of the Covenant, dwelling there in the Holy of Holies at the tabernacle. And so. And so uh, Hannah goes to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, and she's not allowed in the fenced area. Being a woman, she's not allowed in the fenced area. So she goes right up as close as she can get to Yahweh. She doesn't cross over the area, but she gets as close as she gets. And she starts begging with God to give her a child. She says, God, I'll do anything you need me to do. She bargains with God. She says, God, please give me a child. If you'll give me a child, I will give him up for your service. Please give me. And she was deeply emotional. The Bible says she prayed with deep bitterness in her soul. Have you ever prayed with deep bitterness in your soul? Hannah did that morning. It was in the morning. We know that too. Because Eli walked by and saw this woman behaving very oddly right there at the edge of where she wasn't supposed to go. She's so caught up emotionally in her prayer that her her lips are moving, you know, but no sounds coming out. I do that sometimes. I remember whenever I, at my wedding, you know, we're doing the vows. I'm kind of getting into it and I'm moving my lips whenever it's, uh, my wife's supposed to be talking because I'm kind of, and she's like, stop doing that. You're messing with me. You know, you ever get, I don't know if you've ever been so emotional that the stuff going on in your, inside you just starts, your lips starts moving. Well, that's what she was doing as she was praying. And Eli walks by and sees her behaving very peculiarly. And he says, he, he, he thinks she's drunk. And he says, put away your wine, woman. How long will you keep getting drunk? And, of course, she's mortified that Eli, who, mind you, is the chief priest of all of Israel. This is a bigwig. This is an important man. This is the guy who, once a year, goes into the Holy of Holies, where Yahweh most fully dwells. This Hannah's a woman who can't even go in the tabernacle. And this guy is the biggest, most important man in all of Israel. He walks by, sees her behaving peculiarly, says, well, How long are you going to keep getting drunk? She says, Oh, no, my Lord, I'm not getting drunk. No, no, I've just been praying to the Lord. And Eli, kindly old man, at least that's how, that's how I read him in the story. its a kindly old man. And he says, uh, Go in peace, and may God give you what you have asked. And she did go in peace, and God did give her what she asked. Not long after, Samuel is born. And now Hannah goes up to her husband, Elkanah, and she says, Elkanah, I promised God that if he would give me a son, I would give his son for service to the Lord. What should I do? Should I take him back to Shiloh to live there with Eli, to be raised up to be a priest? And Elkanah's response, you can see this in the Bible, Elkanah's response is, do whatever you think is best. And so Hannah does. When Samuel was old enough to lean, she returned back to that same place where she had prayed in bitterness of soul some years before. Young Samuel, hand in hand—I don't know if he's about five, six years old at the time—I met. Is it JT or TJ that I met this morning? JT's too. I watched him walk up here and put some money in. Y'all yeah, blessed with lots of kids. I'm getting—I'm starting to get more sentimental towards kids as I get older. I know that's typical, but in my mind, I can see, I want you to try to envision this like a picture in your mind. Here is Hannah, hand in hand with a five or six-year-old young Samuel, walks up, puts his hand in the withered old hand of Eli, and then turns and walks away. At, this time, at the time she gave Samuel back to the Lord, she'd had no other kids. She did eventually have other kids, but she didn't at that time. Hannah didn't withhold anything from God, not even that which she loved most. Now, as if our story were a movie, again, I want you to see, see the scene kind of fading to black as Hannah walks away. And then the picture comes back up. And when the picture comes back up, there are two young men, 19, 20 years old, and they're around, kind of, uh, they're doing, in the middle of an altar doing a a religious festival, right? A festival, a religious proceeding, you may say. They're taking some of the um, sacrifice that's being brought to them by poor peasants there in Israel men as a sacrifice to God, and they're taking some of the meat that is meant for God. Some of the meat was reserved for the priests to give them something to eat, right? Because they weren't farmers or whatever. They weren't ranchers. That's what they did. And But they were taking the parts meant for God and they were eating themselves. They were using their position of power and authority to, um, for promiscuous reasons with Israelite women. They were religious bullies using their position of power to take advantage of God and others, taking advantage of their their powerful position in the community. As you're seeing these two religious bullies do what they do, off to the side you see old Eli again. And he sees what they're doing, and he walks up to them and he says, these are his two sons, his two young sons, youngish sons. And he says, y'all stop. (laughs) Y'all can't behave this way. And then he walks away, but as he's walking away, he sees they haven't stopped. They haven't listened to him at all. And he just shakes his head, and he shrugs. What am I supposed to do? And about that time, all right, in my mind, what I see is a guy in a horse right up. That's not in Scripture, but it's just what I see in the movie in my mind. All right, A guy rides up on a horse. I imagine him in all black and wearing a black cowboy hat. I don't know why I imagine that. I think it's because this guy, we don't know anything about him. He's just a mysterious stranger who shows up at this point in the story, and we don't know anything about him. Right? So I think of him like the mysterious stranger who rides into the town in the cowboy movies, right? So he rides up on a horse and he has a message for Eli. He says, Are you Eli? Yes, I am. I got a message from God for you. This is what he says. This is what the mysterious stranger says to Eli God Almighty promised your ancestor Aaron that he and his descendants would get to be priests forever, honored as those who get to approach God on behalf of of the people but that's that's been changed because of how your sons have be act, been acting and because you haven't done anything to stop it god says you're honoring your sons more than you're honoring me so i'm going to kill your two sons and you most of your descendants will be cut off from the priestly line and those that i don't cut off i'm going to sap their strength i'm going to destroy their vision and i'm going to strike them down in the prime of their life I'm going to raise up a faithful priest and everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office that I might have food to eat. That's the prophecy. (laughs) That's quite the prophecy of doom. I want I to take, uh, take a break from our movie for a second, right? We've been going from scene to scene. I want to take a break from that movie to talk about this prophecy just for a moment. I don't have time to talk about it in full. We you know, when I first read, I got into this lesson when I was tra- by trying to figure out what Eli had done that was so bad. I couldn't figure out the story. And so I read this prophecy and I was trying to understand it. And my first, my first idea when I read the prophecy was that Samuel was the priest who, who was prophesied that, was going to be, that God was going to raise up in place of Eli. But in truth, actually, we don't get any word that Samuel becomes priest. He becomes judge, but it's not clear that he's actually in the priestly line or he does become a priest. It's important for us to remember in this story and all the time that the Old Testament is God's progressive revelation to man. And we... Because we're on this side of the story of Jesus Christ, we can look back on the stories of the Old Testament and learn more about what God was doing in human history than even the people who lived at that time could understand. We can read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. And when we do this, one plausible interpretation of this prophecy is that the priests uh, who God's going to raise up Who this mysterious stranger prophesied about here is not Samuel, it's Jesus. I tend to think that the faithful priest that God promised to raise up is a prophecy of Jesus. Everyone in the family line of Eli, that is, all of us who scorn God's sacrifice, who love stuff of the world more than we love the spiritual food of God, we have our strength destroyed. We lose a clear vision of what is good and what is to be loved. And we are struck down even in the prime of our life. And all we can do is go before the faithful priests on the cross and bow before him, hoping for a scrap of food, hoping we can be appointed to some priestly office so that we can have something of true and lasting value. His water to drink from, his everlasting water, his spiritual food. Now, I'm not sure if that's the right interpretation of that prophecy or not. Let's go back to the movie. All right. So the mysterious stranger rides rides away. He he delivers this prophecy we just talked about, and then he rides away, and then the screen fades to black again, okay? The picture comes back up, and the words sometime later are at the bottom of the screen. (laughs) All right. And here's what's going on. Samuel, now a young man, is in bed. And now this is the story you all know. Samuel, a young man, is in bed and he hears hears someone call him. Samuel. And he gets up and he runs to Eli and he said, you called me? And Eli said, I didn't call you, boy. Go back to bed. So he goes back to bed and he hears somebody again. Samuel. And he gets up and he runs to Eli and he says, Eli, you called me? And Eli says, I didn't call you, boy. Go back to bed. So he goes back to bed. Samuel. He gets up. He runs to Eli. He says, you called me? He says, what is going on here? I haven't called you a single time. And then Eli realizes what's happening. And he says, next time you hear someone call you, say this. Say, speak for your servant is listening. Are you listening? He goes back, he gets in bed, he hears his name, he says, speak, for your servant is listening. And God does speak. And he delivers. Now the mysterious stranger, remember, was years before, right? Nothing's happened during that time period. So this is a second prophecy years later. Again, A prophecy of doom for Eli. Next morning, Samuel goes to breakfast. Eli says, hey, did you ever hear your name again last night? He goes, ah, yeah, I don't really want to talk about it. (laughs) He says, boy, you better tell me. What did you hear? And so young Samuel kind of hangs his head, and he tells him what he heard. And this is Eli's response. Eli says, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good or what is right in his own eyes. He is the Lord. Let him do what he thinks he ought to do. Right? That's his response. When I read that, I remember thinking, well, that seems like a really kind of pretty awesome response. I'm no longer convinced it is, by the way. I'll tell you why later. But that's what Eli says. Um, all right, the story's not quite done. One more fade to black, okay? Fade to black here at the dinner table, at the breakfast table. When the light comes back up, Eli now is a very old man. Right? And he's um, sitting in a chair and um, he's kind of blind. He can't see. And from off the side of the screen, this disheveled uh, soldier, dirty and ragged, comes up and comes up to Eli and tells him, We've been routed. The Philistines have defeated us in battle, they've killed 30,000 of our Israelite men. Your two sons, Eli, are dead, and they've taken the Ark of the Covenant. It's hard for us with our modern minds to understand the staggering blow that it would mean that their enemies, the Philistines, took the Ark of the Covenant. This was the place where their God dwelt. The reason they took it into battle was because taking the Ark into battle was taking Yahweh into battle with them. To have the ark taken is to have their identity taken. To have their God and their power taken from them. It is to be utterly abandoned by God. It's to be lost. Eli falls over, breaks his neck, and he's dead. And it gets a little worse. (laughs) I'm not quite done. After you see Eli fall over and break his neck and die, you hear uh, sounds of crying. Someone cry out from a tent nearby, and you walk over to the tent, and you put your head in, and you see a woman giving birth. This woman is one of Eli's daughter-in-laws. The messenger goes over into the tent and delivers word to the nursemaid that this boy's father died in battle that very day. The mother hears that the father is dead. Hears that Eli is dead. The baby is born. The nursemaid says, don't despair. Look, you've got a beautiful baby boy. But the young mother is despondent. She won't look at the child. She says, name him Ichabod. Without honor, the Lord has left us. That's what it means. And then she dies. Now the story's over. Man, that's a heavy story, isn't it? <laughs> man, you talk about a tragedy. And, and I got to thinking, what did Eli do so wrong? Actually, Eli kind of, in me, to me, Eli seems like kind of a, a really, I don't know, a kind old man, right? What's, what's the big deal? Why is Eli so strongly condemned in these first few chapters of Samuel? What did he do wrong? I mean, he could have been better, yeah, but he actually had words of wisdom. He cared for people. What was his great big sin? Well, I wanted to, it occurred to me that the way the story is written in the first few chapters of Samuel, if you'll take Hannah and Eli as the two chief characters, and if you'll contrast them to one another, you'll realize what Eli did wrong. And it comes down to three things. And each of the three things Eli did wrong is what Hannah did right. Okay? Here's one thing that that, uh, Eli did wrong and Hannah did right. Hannah was a barren woman. She was dissatisfied with her life. Her life was unfruitful. It was not what she wanted it to be. And she wasn't satisfied with it. She went to God and begged him to bring her a child. She She refused to be placated. She refused to listen to the doom in her life and let it have the last word. She said, God, what do you need me to do? I'll do it. Eli, on the other hand, when he heard the message of doom from the Lord, he said, well, he's God. Let him do what is right in his own eyes. Maybe that's not what God wanted him to say. You ever wonder why God, why the two prophecies? Why did he give the one prophecy and then wait, you know, like a decade or whatever it was, and then give another one and then wait some more time? Maybe it was because God wanted Eli to fight. God wanted Eli to say, what do you need me to do, Lord? I'll do whatever it takes. Just remove this prophecy of doom from my family. Our family is living under a dark cloud. God help it be gone. Give us a family living and enveloped in love and comfort. What do we need to do to get rid of this doom that surrounds our family? I'll do it. God, I will not be placated. I will come to you and I will beg you to bring our family life. But that's not what Eli did. Eli said, he is God. Let him do what is right in his own eyes. Sometimes God wants us to wrestle with him like Jacob did. Because in the process of wrestling with God, we're changed by the encounter. He wants us to fight. It's what he wants us to. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes there comes a place in life where the right thing to do is not to fight for the thing you want, but to trust God and give it, give it away, which is actually something Hannah does, too. We'll come to that in a second. But that should always come after a struggle, never merely just accepting it, Right? But that also brings us to the second thing that Hannah did right and that Eli did wrong. Hannah trusted God enough to give him what was most dear to her. She held nothing back from God, not even what she loved most in the world. She brought young Samuel to the temple And she gave him away, as she said she would in the prayer. Eli, on the other hand, did not trust God enough to entrust his two sons to his care. He didn't trust him enough to come down on him and say, you can't do this, to really intervene. He was was too apathetic. He was too weak. That's another, a third, a third thing that you see different between Hannah and Eli. Hannah, she told God that she would give Samuel to his, to his service. And then she went home. Samuel's born. She goes to her husband. She says, hey, should I do this or not? And her husband says, man, I don't know. You decide. And so she did. Hannah was a barren woman. She was the lowest of the social totem pole of Israel. The lowest of the low. She wasn't allowed in the tabernacle. And yet she went as close as she could go. And she said, I'll do whatever I need to do. And then when it came time to make a hard decision, she made it. She wasn't afraid to make the hard decisions that a leader needs to make. And yet Eli was the chief priest of all of Israel. Not only was he allowed in the tabernacle, he went into the Holy of Holies. And yet he wasn't willing to lead. He wasn't willing to do the things that God wanted him to do. Men, I want to say this to us. If, we're too lax, if, we, if we are too lazy or don't trust God enough to lead our families, something bad, uh, there's, a price, there's a price to be paid always. He expects us to be spiritual leaders in our family. And when we don't do it, there's a price to be paid. And there was a price to be paid for Eli's failure to lead. And there was a beautiful blessing that flowed from Hannah's willingness to step up if no one else would do it. I don't want to end the story there because the story doesn't quite end there. I'm going to turn. I'm going to read now some from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. This is 20 years later. Samuel has been the judge, the first uh, or one of the judges of Israel for the last twenty years. Actually, the last judge for the last twenty years. He says it was a long time, twenty years in all. I forgot to bring my glasses up, but I think I can read it. <laughs> it was a long time, twenty years in all, that the ark remained with the Philistines. All right, so you remember the end of the of the last whenever we went, went back from the movie, the Philistines had just captured the ark of the covenant in battle. Do you remember that? Okay, well this is twenty years later. Samuel has been the judge of Israel for some time. The Philistines still have the ark, right? And then there's some weird things that happen where the, where the uh, God makes it. He, he caused pestilence to come on the Philistines. So they put the Ark of the Covenant on, like a, uh, on, a, on a cart driven by some ox. And they just said, send it away, go away. <laughs> and the ark makes it back to, to Israel. And so they get the ark back, right? And a lot of great things start to happen. There's kind of a revival. And they all go to Mizpah. Okay, it was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained with the Philistines. And Samuel said, and Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourself of the foreign gods, the Astaroths, and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you. Out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bells and their Ashtaroths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned. Against the Lord, and Samuel was the leader of Israel at Mizpah. I'll just tell you the next part rather than read it. So all of Israel is gathered together at Mizpah, where they're offering spiritual practices, they're confessing their sins, they're pouring themselves out like water before the Lord. they're cutting down their idols, right their idols to Bel and Ashtaroth, the foreign gods whom they serve, they're cutting those idols down. The Philistines hear that the Israelites are, ge- are, are gathering at Mizpah, and they think, hey, this is a great time to attack them all in one place. And so the Philistines send out a huge army to just wipe out Israel there at Mizpah. And the Israelites hear word that the Philistines are coming, and they say, oh no, Samuel, plead out to God for us. And he does. And God thunders down that day at Mizpah and terrifies the Philistines. So the Israelites are able to attack them and rout them. It goes on to say that they chased them, killing them along the way. All right, I'm almost done. So hang in there a little bit longer. Got a couple points that I really think are important to hear, so I hope you can stay with me a little more. But um, think about this image, okay? Sometimes Old Testament images um, are really interesting to me because I'm trying to figure out what they mean for us. This is an interesting one to me, right? we got the Philistines who are described as the enemy of God. And yet we know when we look at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, the Philistines are not really the enemy of God. Not really. In fact, they're they're created by God too. We see other places in the Old Testament where we know that the gift to the Jewish people were meant to be a gift to all the nations, not just the Jewish people, including the Philistines. So how how are we supposed to understand this story through the lens of Jesus Christ? Here's a suggestion I have. The true enemy of God's people does, in fact, attack you and me. And it's not the Philistines. This story is meant to help us understand how the true enemy of God attacks us. The true enemy of God is the power and the principalities of this dark world, as we're told in the New Testament. They're powers of Satan, all the powers that are intended to rob us of the life and the joy God means for us. And if we will go to God, if we'll pour ourselves out like water before the Lord as a community, and we'll say, Lord, we have sinned. We have worshipped other things rather than you. We we worshipped what people thought about us. We worshipped money. We worshipped the next job. You know what an idol is? An idol is anything you look to save you from your broken life. An idol is anything you think you have to have in order to have joy. Maybe you think to yourself, if I don't get this promotion, I don't see how. I gotta get this promotion for my life to go okay. Sometimes really good things can become idols. I have two kids. One of them played a football game yesterday, he's in sixth grade, his first year playing football. The others play soccer later today. I love my kids. (laughs) I want good things for them. You know what? I can love my kids too much. I can get to the point where I think certain things happening for my kids are essential for me to have joy in God. My own kids can become idols. Where the thing I want the most in the world is some certain thing for my child. What I want the most in the world is for my spouse to finally uh, love me the way they should. Or for her to have a spouse. God, why won't you give me? There is, of course, a danger for Hannah. She wanted a kid so much. Having a kid could have become an idol for her. Lord, I got to have a kid to have a happy life. And yet her kid was born and she gave him away. We have to be willing to give anything away for the Lord. We can't worship anything else. We worship only God. Only God, only God, only God can we worship. Only He can bring us joy. Only He can bring us abundance. Nothing else. If we have God, we don't need anything else. That's the truth. So the enemy of God's people are all the powers and principalities in our hearts that seek to to rob um, God's true kingship from our life. And if we'll ask God, he will give us a power. He will thunder down and he will allow us to be oriented inside our heart in such a way that we really want him the way that we should. He will give us the desires of our heart, as we're told in the Psalms. And the desire he gives us will be a desire for himself. And when he finally sanctifies us to that point, when he finally transforms us from one degree of glory to the next, as we're told in Corinthians, where what we really want is God. We want God and nothing else. We want God. Whenever that becomes the kind of person we are on the inside, through his power, as we participate with him in our sanctification, in our glorification, we'll come to a point where joy and abundance is ours regardless of what's going on around us. And this happens to us not individually. This happens to us in a community, just like it did with Israel at Mizpah. And so here's my message to this community. Choose joy, just like the sign says at the parsonage. You choose joy by choosing God, by choosing to worship God and God only. Even horrible stories, like that horrible one I told in the first half of this sermon, can have such a beautiful ending when God's at the end of it. I'm move to finish in prayer this morning if that's okay, uh, and then I'll be done and I'll sit down after the prayer. Let's, pre- let's pray. Holy Father, transcendent maker of heaven and earth, the lion of Israel. give us faith to reach out our hand to you. Not because we forget your power, not because we forget who you are, but because we trust you. Help us to trust you enough to give all up for you, to hold nothing back from you. Because we know you are competent and loving and you will provide what we need. Oh, Lord, give us hearts that desire you above all else. Oh, Lord, give us hearts that desire you above all else. Lord, give us hearts that desire you above all else. Be our joy. It's in your name we pray. Amen.